You're listening to Michael Easley in Context. And now your host, Michael Easley. Welcome to Context. In just a moment, we're going to jump into a pre-recorded message from around this time last year. Now, I make some comments about the political climate of our time, and interestingly, it sounds a lot like what's going on right now. There is nothing new under the sun. What we face today is not unique to what others have faced before, including Israel. We are an egocentric society. We as Americans have a very hard time looking beyond our own worldview. But assuming that in our lifetime, it's the worst and the cultural climate is horrible, you know, I often remind myself and others that nothing is new. When the Jews were facing a difficult time, they would renew their hope in God by remembering what he has done, going back to their history, telling themselves again what God had done. As we enter another holiday season, a season of Advent, which, by the way, means to wait for the arrival, perhaps we should pause, take some time, reflect on what the Lord has already done for you and for me. Let's join a message in progress where we think about this. Um, the human condition is a fallen, broken situation that can make us all lose hope. No matter how long we live, no matter what experiences we go through, um, we are always going to have tensions and challenges, wars and rumors of wars, terrorism. In the 30 years that I've been paying a little bit of attention to our political landscape, I've never seen it as politically divided, as vitriolic, um, uh, all the stuff going on. You turn the news on, it's completely depressing every single day, whether it's a single act of a, a person who's mentally unstable or it's alleged terrorism or whatever the case may be. And beyond these large and ominous forces that we are now becoming, it's becoming commonplace to live with this, uh, beyond those forces are just the, just the stuff of life, of marriage and family and health. And raising kids, raising teens, raising your grandchildren. Your grandchildren, by the way. Not your son and daughter's child, but your grandchild. Uh, taking care of business. Finishing your college, finishing your degrees, going back to school. How we get along in marriage and family. Going through divorce, going through single parenting. Now, the stuff of life is just ever-present. Not bad enough that we have these ominous big threats that are terrifying and can cause us to be insecure and worry, add money and debt and all kinds of challenges. and just makes for a joyful life, doesn't it? So much fun to wake up and challenge the day. A fixation on these can paralyze us. Uh, Over-concern about any of these things can make us people that chew our mental fingernails and worry about everything and lose sleep and watch too much news and read too much press. Or if we become apathetic, we're off guard and unaware. You know, the ancients were not that different than you and me. Uh, sure, they didn't have technology. They didn't have devices that could pull up things instantaneously. They didn't have Twitter accounts and real-time hashtags. But the ancients were no different. They were not stupid people. They were intelligent just like you and me. They had a brain. They had skills. They had crafts. They knew how to raise their family. They knew how to make a marriage work. They knew how to sin. They were not that different. 
While technology and convenience have helped us, it hasn't made the human condition any different. One could argue it's made it worse. They feared war, they feared disease, they feared their children's livelihoods, they feared for their own health. They wanted love, they wanted happiness, they wanted the crops to prosper, they wanted their business to succeed, they wanted to employ people, they wanted to do the right thing the right way, they wanted justice, they wanted a king to rule well, they thought things should work, they loved God. And many of the ancient Jews were pious believers. Men and women for thousands of years have found and lost hope. And part of the challenge of understanding hope is we're not hoping in hope. That's no different than the little engine that could. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. Theology is a false system. We're not hoping in hope. That's a a circular argument that goes nowhere. So in what do we hope? How many of you had to read The Count of Monte Cristo in high school or college? How many of you cheated and saw the film like me? <laughs> or films, the m- many iterations of the film. Andre Dumas has a character uh, in the film, and uh, the storyline, Morel, he speaks to, that is sort of the one bright hope of the whole storyline. There is neither happiness nor misery in the world. There is only comparison from one state to another nothing more. He who has felt the deepest grief is able to experience supreme happiness. He who has experienced the deepest grief is able to experience supreme happiness. Live then and be happy, beloved children of my heart, and never forget that the day God will deign to reveal to us the future of man, all human wisdom is contained in these two words, wait and hope. Now, that may not stir you like it stirs me, but it still falls. Am I just hoping in hope? Many of us in the room would say Shawshank Redemption is one of your favorite films. If you ever want to uh, entertain yourself, read the novella by Stephen King, a very short story called Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption on which uh, King's work was taken and produced into the film. But we may remember the classic line, remember hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. And we love that line. But it's still hope in hope. It's kind of flat if you follow it through. It's not just positive mental attitude or think nice thoughts or think hopeful, cheery, positive outcomes because... The human condition is what it is, and we live in that situation. Well, let's look at what the Scripture teaches us about hope in a a short part today at least. Let me ask you to stand for just a moment. Let's read Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7 one more time. For a child will be born to us, and a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this.
approximately 740 years before Christ is born, Isaiah begins this work. It will take him approximately 40 years to complete the record of Isaiah. We call it a major prophet, not because he's more important, but because he's more material. A minor prophet is just someone with a shorter account. Isaiah spreads four different kings. The last king he will write under is Hezekiah. The nation is divided. Israel is in the north. Judah is in the south. For you history buffs, I remember that. I comes before J in the alphabet. I in the north, J in the south. Israel and Judah have been divided. The divided kingdom is not a good thing. It was to be a unified kingdom. It was to be one kingdom, a theocracy under Yahweh Elohim as their king, as their God. And yet they have infighting and civil war and a list of kings who do evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, what is happening in chapter 9, and we talk about prophetic literature, uh, sometimes you hear the phrase, now but not yet. That's not a bad phrase, but it creates some questions that are not unnecessary to me. I think of layers rather than now and not yet. Now and not yet is fine. If you like that phrase, you're okay. But I like to think of layers. When this text was penned, it meant something in that time frame to those hearers. As we go through time and we understand more and more of God's plan, more and more of God's work and the New Testament unfolds it, then we see new layers of meaning and how it applies. There's one interpretation of the text written in an historical context, but it has new emphasis, new applications, new understanding as time goes on. And we're going to see where Paul will appeal to some of these verses as will other New Testament authors appeal to the Old Testament. So briefly then we look at a passage that had a context, but we're talking about what it means from a larger perspective as we look back from the New Testament. And the passage we just read, of course, is about the birth of Messiah. In the time it was written, these terms would be messianic. They would be the word deliverer or savior and king. So the language we've just read is looking toward, toward a time when a deliverer, a sovereign king will come and make things right. And that's, of course, what the ancients wanted and what we want as well. These promises connect back to Abraham because he promised Abraham he would be a blessing to the world, that through him the world will be blessed. We'll briefly touch on Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7 about the Davidic kingdom because from the Abrahamic promise, that unilateral, unconditional promise, will come the Davidic line. And the Davidic line will be the kingdom that God says, I will establish it forever. There will be a king who will reign in the Davidic lineage forever. And so these promises aren't just kind of nice Bible stories. This is the word of God saying, I'm going to do a thing and nothing can stop it. And therein where the believer finds hope, not merely hope in hope. Well, there's five descriptions of this Savior King, this Deliverer King given in Isaiah. The first one is in verse 6, a child is born, a son will be given. Now this is a parallelism. If you study the Psalms, you should learn to pick, pick up on these. This is really easy to see. A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. A child, a son will be born, will be given. It's a repetition. It's very easy to see. But much more than that repetition is going on. To be a child is to be human. To be born of man is to be a human individual. A child will be born, a son will be given to us. The child has to be male because the royal lineage, sorry women, in antiquity only a king, only men could be king. 
and you had to be of the lineage of the king in order to be acknowledged a king. You couldn't just make yourself a king. We see that braid down later in Israel's history. By the time of Judges, of course, it's a disaster. Notice that he comes to us, a child we born to us, a son will be given. This is where God is the agent, is moving in men's lives. He's going to bring a child, a son of man who's going to come, and he's going to be born at a time to be that deliverer king. Secondly, he will rule. The government will rest on his shoulders. <clears throat> when you see sometimes, if, if you saw when Prince Charles, if you remember the footage of that, was, was established as prince, or in more, in more of an immediate context, if you've ever been to an inauguration of a college president, he or she, they typically make a custom doctoral robe or a color hood for that individual, and often a medallion accompanies that uh, appointment to be a president of a college university. And what they're doing is they're putting the weight of the governing of that school, or for a king, the weight of that kingdom is robed on his shoulders. That's what the metaphor means. The government will rest on his shoulders. So this regal robe in the royal line is going to be put on this boy king, this soon-coming king, and he is the one who will wear the weight of the authority granted to him. Thirdly, his name will be called. Literally, the phrase is, one will call his name. Now, I don't like to burrow down too far in the language, but sometimes it's important for us to hear it differently. It's not like someone's going to name him. The text is precise, one will call his name. And why that is important, in the Old Testament, when the Hebrews named their children, it wasn't just a name they liked. Sure, sometimes it was a family name, but you were both observing and ascribing character to a child. And some of the names are quite comical as we study Old Testament history, and some are quite significant. So when you named a child, it, uh, contemplation, when it, it wasn't just, let me, I like, it's a cool sounding name, like we, I like the name so-and-so, let's name that. You know, Cindy and I argued about our children's names, you know. I like this, I like that. No, I'll, I always think of that person in high school if you name our child that child. So we argued about names, and you pick a name, right? That's how we do it as Americans. That sounds good. Um, not how the Hebrew did it. When you named a child Asher, that child brought joy. Or that baby was a joyful baby when they were an infant. And you said, let's, let's name him Joy. So there was thought behind the name. So what the Hebrew is saying, one will call his name. And now we're going to have four descriptors of that name. So we take a little excursus into this name. Four words, wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. Some of your older Bibles use wonderful and counselor as two different names, coming up with five names. More recent translations opt for four. It doesn't make that big of a difference. Wonderful is one of those English words that means everything, therefore it means nothing. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. I hope you have a wonderful Christmas. What does that mean? Whatever you want it to mean. The word in Hebrew, 80% of the time, means supernatural. Otherworldly. This counselor is supernatural. Think of signs and wonders. You've heard that expression, signs and wonders in Old and New Testament. They're things that are supernatural. They're above nature. We can't explain them away by observation of nature. When Christ turns water to wine, that's supernatural, above nature. When he walks on water, that's above nature. That's a wonder. And so the word 80% of the time has to do with God doing something that is supernatural. 
the wonderful counselor. The idea combined with this counselor is that he is a sovereign king. He is a wonderful, brilliant leader, not just a smart human being, not just the head of his pack, not just politically shrewd, not just going to make Israel great again. Uh, He is a supernatural counselor. Secondly, he's mighty God. The text is a head-scratcher for the Jew. How can a human king be a mighty God? And we're introduced to the doctrine of the Trinity in many ways in the Old Testament. He's no mere human hero. He's not a God hero. He's the mighty God. Now some of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis, what they, he calls the, the trimillennial. The idea is a dilemma, trimillennial. The idea is that there's liar, lunatic, or lord. Now, Lewis popularized it. It was actually a part of rhetoric much before Lewis, but he made it common. And he writes in part in his book, Mere Christianity, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying that really foolish thing that people say about him, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who said he was a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him, you can kill him as a demon, or You can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have accepted the view that he was and is God. So the trilemma was liar, lunatic, Lord. The text is saying he's mighty God. He's going to be born. He's a son of. He's a royal lineage. But he's fully God. And we've said many times he must be fully human in order to die. Must be fully God in order to live again and to grant resurrection power to those who follow in him. Thirdly, he's the eternal father. And this again continues the conundrum for the ancient for the Jew, for the pious believer, the rabbinic scholars couldn't understand how could he be a child born royally and be the eternal God. The second person of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, we malign the Holy Spirit. We forget about him, but the Son is fully God. He's not a little chip off the old God. He's not a human chip off the big block of God. He is fully God. And the relationship that that exists between the Father, Son, and Spirit will be forever examined by human brains. We won't comprehend it all, but it is clearly taught in Scripture. Fourthly, he's the Prince of Peace. Shar Shalom. Again, we need some help here. Shar is the word commander or captain. Again, we think of the word prince as more of a sort of a, an emblem, a relic. I mean, you think of Prince Charles, um, nothing disparaging against him or his sons, but it's a, it's a status It's a country that has this strange relationship toward this nobility that really has very little power other than, you know, what they do behind the scenes. 
A true prince was a commander. An ancient prince was a leader, often a captain of a guard, a ruler, a master. So the phrase is the commander, the master of peace, shalom. And shalom is again another word that means nothing to us. Peace be with you. What does that mean? Uh, It's not just the absence of war. For a king to bring peace meant that he was whole or complete as a leader. He brought what everybody wanted. He brought safety. He brought prosperity to the land. He executed justice and mercy properly. We all want a leader who will do those kinds of things. We want a leader who is a captain, a commander, a strong person who understands how to protect his people from real enemies at the same time making the environment prosperous for the people that live under his reign. The Prince of Peace is the one who administers a relationship with the people whom he loves. Well, those are the names. We go back to the text. Further about this deliverer, savior, king, there's no end to the increase on the throne of David. Second Samuel chapter 7, we won't turn there, is the, is the discussion related where David wanted to build God a palace, a, 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 a home. And God says, no, you're a, you're, your hands are marked with blood. You can build yourself a palace, but your son will build me a temple complex, not you. And so David, being a very powerful, wealthy king, amasses building supplies that will outlast him so that his son Solomon can build this fabulous, one-of-a-kind construct we know as the temple complex. But God lets him build his own house. God tells David that there will be a king on the throne of David forever and ever and ever. And again, rabbinic scratched their head. Well, wait a minute, the kingdoms have dissolved and fallen in disaster. The the divided kingdom destroyed the unified kingdom. The period of the judges was disastrous. I mean, the the Jew was at its lowest, darkest time politically and theologically. And people did what was right in their own eyes. No, there's going to be a ruler king who will reign forever. That's why the promises of Scripture are, the cadence of Scripture cannot be broken. From the time of Abraham, I'm making a promise. I'm going to bless the world through you, Abraham. There's one going to come from you. And we, we get recast in 2 Samuel 7. There'll be a king forever on that throne. And he'll be born. And he'll die. And he'll come again and reign for all eternity. Just because he's absent on the throne right now does not mean he's not present. Just because he's not literally on earth in a fancy building does not mean he's not active as the king of the universe. The cadence of Scripture is hard to meet. It says there's no end to the increase of his government. And this is a little bit humorous because every king always wants more land and more power. No king is ever satisfied. The economy is big enough. Our land is big enough. uh, The number of people is enough. And so we're just going to maintain what we have. It's the nature of a king to increase. It's the nature of a king to to reign and to rule and to expand his kingdom. And that's why we have constant wars and we always will on until Christ returns. He is to uphold it with justice and righteousness. Justice is the ability to serve the, uh, the one who's been injured and to vindicate, uh, to deal with, to punish the one who's committed a crime. We're to vindicate the widow and the orphan. The widow and the orphan is not always literal. It's an A to Z formula. Those who are the most vulnerable are little orphans and old widows. A to Z. You take care of anyone 
whom injustice can hurt. That's what a judge does. He justifies the, the, the punishment to the wicked. They're going to vindicate the innocent. So this king is to execute justice and righteousness. So justice is to execute what the punishment fits the crime. Righteousness is doing the right thing in the right way all the time. Now, dream for just a moment. If every elected and appointed official in our country executed justice properly and did the right thing in the right way every time, oh, what a wonderful world it would be. No soft money, no PACs, no corruption, no behind the doors, no lobbying, no, no audience with the king. No. If that person is guilty of a crime, the punishment fits the crime, and you vindicate the individual who is hurt or injured or taken advantage of. You protect the widow and orphan, those most vulnerable in that category. And if it's the right thing, you do the right thing in the right way. That's what a king, a leader, a politician, an elected or an appointed official ought to do. Now that's a, that's a fantasy. But it's a reality with this king. Think of how many things would be different in our country if everyone from the law enforcement to the bench to the elected official executed justice properly and did the right thing in the right way. We wouldn't be arguing about the wrong things. We'd live in a land that'd be completely different. And no, it's not found in Belize. Fifth, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Zeal is a strong emotional word. The closest we have in our language is jealousy. Um, if some guy is making moves on Cindy, I am jealous for my marriage. If some woman is making moves on me, Cindy has talons that come out of her hands, and she is jealous for me and our marriage. That's the closest word we have to understand what zeal means in the Old Testament. God is zealously, jealously, ardently loving and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. It's a two-edged sword. You must cut to administer justice two ways. You must vindicate and you must execute the punishment that fits the crime. The Savior King that Isaiah is talking about, the deliverer is the one who will come who will do this. Alec Motier said it very succinctly. It is the Lord who plans the future, shatters the foe, and keeps his promises. It is the Lord who plans the future, shatters the foe, and keeps his promises. Well, next week, we'll continue discussing looking at hope. But I want to leave you with a little encouragement. You know, no matter what tension, what challenge, what challenges you might be facing right now during the holiday season, during Christmas, whether it's a dysfunctional family, loneliness, infertility, unemployment, Maybe you, like many Americans, are really sad or concerned about the political climate of our country. Remember this. This earth is not our home. Our hope is not in princes. Our hope is not in mankind. Yes, we want good people in office. We want good people in authority. We want good bosses, good leaders. But our hope isn't bound simply in them. Our hope is in the Son of Man, who was born to die that we might live. Born of the flesh, died on a cross for your sins, for mine. He died in our place, on our behalf, instead of us. He's resurrected on that third day. And he is our hope. He is our only hope. Because of what he has already accomplished for us, 
we can look back at that history we too often forget and know our promises are grounded in his word. It's true. And as always, I hope you'll smile at the future. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next week for part two of our broadcast. In Context is made possible by donations from listeners like you. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or monthly donation at michaelincontext.com? Thank you.